Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Pay-Per-View where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. And I'm going to start this week with a story here relating to school. This is in the Independent. Parents told that sick children must sit all SACS exams as cause for boycott grill. Parents are being told that sick children should sit their SATS tests even if they need to rely on first aiders for extra support during exams. As calls for a boycott on the exams grow, parents are urging head teachers to put their duty of care ahead of accountability data and to play an active part in fighting back against this system. The Independent revealed last month that more than 5,500 parents downloaded a letter which sets out plans to withdraw their 10 and 11 year old children from the SATS when they take place in a fortnight's time. Dr. Bernaka Dubika, Chair of the Faculty for Child and Adolescent Mental Health for the Royal College of Psychiatrists, said it was unacceptable for heads to ask ill children to sit exams. She said that exam pressure could be harmful to some younger children. She added that exam stress has contributed towards rising numbers of young people with mental health problems. We have had such a rise in demand for adolescents in crisis, we don't have much time and resource to see younger children that could benefit from early intervention, she added. Mother Sam Ashton said her heart sank when she read a letter from her daughter's head which said all children should take the SATS tests and even unwell children should sit the exams. Correspondents from East Wittering Community Primary School in West Sussex said ill children could take the test with a first aider and a scribe would be provided for children who had broken a limb. The letter said, please let me know at the beginning of each test day if your child is unwell as often we are able to help. In the case of an unforeseen injury, e.g. breaking an arm, we are able to provide a scribe. Where it is a minor illness, we are able to consider the use of a timetable variation, e.g. child can take the test in the presence of a first aider if needed, and then be collected and returned home at the end of the test. In exceptional circumstances, schools are able to administer the test outside of school, e.g. the pupil's home. Miss Ashton, whose daughter is set to sit the exams, described the letter as horrifying. She told the Independent, as a parent, it is quite distressing to see that in black and white. Well, if you read between the lines, what this is really saying is you will take the test because we represent the state and what we say goes. Susan Parker, head teacher of the primary school, said, Our parents and carers have appreciated the support we were able to offer, including extra first aiders on hand if needed. I want to make sure parents are aware that I am not allowed to authorise absences during statutory exams, but I also try to reassure them that extra support is available if needed. Natasha Devon, former government mental health champion, also said she'd received more calls in primary schools to do work around anxiety. When you talk to both teachers and parents, they say that academic anxiety has now overtaken more traditional concerns like body image, she said. School leaders are writing to parents insisting that pupils must attend classes during holidays... You did hear that, right? I did say holidays. And that children who are ill must sit the tests, campaigners say. This week, Labour MP Emma Hardy asked schools minister Nick Gibb whether it was time to ease the pressure on young children who, she said, were suffering from anxiety because of SATs which are used by the government to assess schools. She said it is much wider than just an exam pressure when you walk into that room where you're talking about the whole pressure cooker of the entire school environment. A spokesperson for the More Than a Score Coalition, which represents 18 education and parents organisations, said they are hearing from more parents this year who want to boycott the SATs. A letter from campaigners calling on heads to support them with the boycott has been sent ahead of the annual conference of the National Association of Head Teachers on Friday. Paul Whiteman, General Secretary of the National Association of Head Teachers, 
said school leaders share many of the concerns that parents have about SATs, but we're making progress by working collaboratively with the Department for Education to look at all aspects of assessment from primary all the way through to secondary. He added, our members have a statutory duty to make sure all pupils in their schools who are eligible and can sit the Key Stage 1 or Key Stage 2 national curriculum test to do so. Julie McCulloch, Interim Director of Policy at the Association of School and College Leaders, said, ASCL is extremely concerned to hear accounts of higher levels of anxiety among children taking SATs. However, the solution to this issue is not to boycott these tests, but she acknowledged that the high-stakes nature of these tests can create a pressurised environment which in some cases unduly affects children. A Department for Education spokesperson said that tests are intended to help schools understand where pupils need more support and to assess schools' performance. We trust schools not to put undue pressure on pupils when administering the assessments and certainly not at the expense of their well-being. This is another story where the state is taken over from the parents and the state becomes the parents. That's the idea in the end. SACS exams. There's two lots of SACS exams. One's at seven, another one at 11. The one at 11 years old is just pointless. SACs are only there at 11 years old to tell the secondary school your kid goes to what classes they'll be in and at what level. Remedial, middle or the top group in different subjects depending on what the results are. That's it. That's all those SATs are. And when you're in secondary school, you can be moved to a different class if necessary anyway. It happened with me. I was in the bottom group for English, even though my result in English was such that I should have been in a higher group because I'm brilliant with words and writing and I was moved to a different class. So SATs are pointless. I've talked about education before in episodes 5 and 10. So without repeating myself again, school is not there to teach kids what they really need to know and the wonders of the world the universe, mathematics like fractals and other understanding that is interesting and opens up potentially new understanding of the world. It's there to teach kids algebra and irrelevant history like the wives of Henry VIII rather than real history that would again open up a new understanding of the world. Science class is not there to teach young people about reality and exploring the universe. It's there to teach kids how to use a Bunsen burner and the crap about human-caused climate change. Irrelevant stuff that you never need in life unless you want to be a historian or a scientist or a mathematician. But how many kids do in comparison? I like the format used in sixth form where you only have to attend classes you're interested in and you choose the classes and you can drop out if and when you want. Apart from the essentials like words, reading, writing and essential math, what else do we really need in life? I see no reason why the sixth form format wouldn't work. And the rest of the time, kids can be creative and playing and enjoying being a kid. But school is not structured to open minds, it's there to close minds. And that's why it's compulsory to be in school from 9 to 3 or 3.30 or 3.15 or whatever it is. Because of the reasons I've talked about before with regards to the left brain and its perception of the world as opposed to the right brain. I go into more detail in episodes 5 and 10. Also, let's not beat around the bush with this one. Many parents use school, especially primary school, as a babysitter. Leave the kids there and then I can go to work or get on with my day without bothering about them. This also plays into the agenda behind feminism, because feminism on one level is about getting women into the workplace to tax them like men. Parents would say, they're learning stuff in school, so what's the problem? Well, what are they learning? How many parents actually question that? Very few, because it's about installing a programme core programming and then you take that core programming throughout life as your reference point for everything and everyone. 
So anything or anyone operating outside of that, I was going to say pea-sized perception, but that's being kind. Nanotechnology-sized perception is to be mocked or ridiculed for operating outside of the programme. The parents have been through the same programme the kids are going through, and they pass it on to the kids from the earliest age. Not to be manipulative, but because they've accepted the programme, so they're passing it on to their kid or kids, because they believe that's the right thing to do. School teaches kids to always look to authority, always look to official sources for news and information on everything, and that's what many people do throughout their life. I mentioned science just now. You don't need a title, you don't need a qualification officially. You don't need a job as a scientist to understand reality. You don't need a scientific mind to understand reality. You only need a free one, an open one. School teaches people to always look to authority. So anything alternative, in other words, different to the program, never gets a chance. And that's perfect for an elite who want to manipulate and control a global population. Perception is everything. Without perception control, there is no control. This is what school is all about, ultimately. Story here that goes on from that article I just read. This is in the Shropshire Star. Lunch drama at Shrewsbury Primary School as parents hit back over a meal of bread, water and fruit. This is another example of the state becoming the parent. Mount Pleasant Primary School has sent a newsletter home to parents telling them about the new policy. It says that if dinner money debts mount up, pupils will be refused a normal meal and instead be given a more basic meal. Head teacher Steve Morris told parents, Dinner arrears exceed £6.60 or more, the school will be unable to serve a lunch, so we request that sandwiches are brought in, otherwise we will only be able to offer bread, fruit and water to pupils. The new rule has upset some parents whose children have been affected. Mother Jamie Lee Heath said she received a call from the school to say that her daughter Madison would be given bread, fruit and water after failing to take any dinner money into the school. She said Madison had been to her dad's the day before and had forgotten her lunch money. Her dad's girlfriend said she would pay at the end of the day but then we got a text message saying that Madison would not have any dinner but would be given bread and water instead as well as a piece of fruit. I think it is terrible. It makes the children stand out because their parents have forgotten to give them any dinner money. Mr. Morris said the school would always ensure that a child would be provided with an alternative meal in the case of forgotten dinner money. He added that the child would eat away from other pupils so as not to draw attention to the situation. Well, you can't avoid drawing attention to the situation because either they eat away from the other pupils in the same room, which means they're drawing attention to them that way, or they eat in a different room and are drawing attention to the situation there just by the fact that they're not with the other kids. They're in a different room, so you can't avoid drawing attention to the situation. Miss Heath took to Facebook to share her experience and dozens of other parents commented on her thread. She said, judging from the comments I received on my status, this is not a one-time thing. It is not right to punish a child for something their parents have forgotten. Considering no child at a primary school would be over the age of 11, I find it pretty appalling to hold them responsible. Mr. Morris sent Miss Heath a letter in which he said her comments were unwelcome and unfair. He added, the school will always ensure that the child is well fed but must have an alternative if arrears are owing and the child is not sent in with a packed lunch or if the arrears have not been paid. In this instance, the school will always ensure that the child is provided with an alternative meal. Well, what is that alternative meal? Bread, water and fruit. The June newsletter of last year did not offer full clarity of what this consisted of. I can confirm that pupils would receive bread and butter as well as a selection of chilled fruit or veg from the salad bar. Drink options are what all pupils can select from, milk or water, so it is bread, water and fruit. In addition, the meal is not consumed alongside other children in the hall, so attention is not drawn to the child. Well, as I've just said, obviously it is. 
This is the world we're heading towards. This is the Hunger Games Society. If you don't follow orders from authority or challenge or expose authority, then you won't get access to food or anything else, as I've said before. It's about control. Human society is not run and directed and planned ultimately by people trying to do the best for people. It's directed by people with a very sinister agenda for humanity. And this is why we have the world that we have. It's also operated on one level by gophers and useless idiots who just do what they're told without understanding why they're being told to do it. This is the pyramid structure where only the tiny few, the elite in this case, know how everything fits together. And then as you come down from the top of the pyramid, you meet more and more people who know less and less. And this is the structure of virtually any organization, business, corporation, school, etc. And those pyramids fit into the overall pyramid of elite manipulation. This is the structure through which the elite can run the world. People have got to start realising the level of psychopathy, extreme psychopathy, that is ultimately directing human society. Another story here about school. This is in the Daily Mail. The pupils who can't talk properly. Education Secretary vows to tackle tragedy of five-year-olds turning up to school unable to use the simple words needed to interact with the teachers and classmates. The drive to end the tragedy of youngsters arriving at school without the speech skills needed to thrive in the classroom will be launched today. This was published on the 30th of April. Research from the Oxford University Press this month found that half of five-year-olds in some schools are behind in their language skills, with experts saying disadvantaged children are disproportionately affected. And a study by the National Literary Trust found that one in eight of the most disadvantaged children do not own a single book because they're focused on technology instead, many of them. Mr. Hines said a lack of vocabulary can create a word gap which sets children behind their peers from the beginning and hinders their progress for the rest of their school career. He is launching two projects worth £13.5 million aimed at giving disadvantaged parents the confidence to help their children learn new words through activities, such as reading and singing. Workshops will be run to give parents simple, straightforward strategies which they can take home and use with preschool children. Mr. Hines said last night, we know there is a gap in child development that can be visible at age five. The easiest way to measure it is the word gap. Where you are in development terms at age five and at the start of school obviously makes a significant difference to your ability to get the most out of infant school and then junior school education. The OUP report found that when children arrive unable to understand basic phrases, they find it much harder to follow commands, make friends and learn how to read. In the long term, it can lead to low confidence, underachievement and poor behavior. There is plenty of evidence of variation in school readiness, Mr. Hines said. It is certainly the case that some children's speech will develop in them later than in others. Some of these programs and techniques can help with that. Without speech, it's so much more difficult to know from the child what they're taking in and how they're developing. Mr. Hines said he wanted to provide more support to parents to help them feel comfortable reading to their children and interacting with them so they can develop their social skills. He added that he and wife Jackie, a teacher, had enjoyed reading books with their three children. Reading to children obviously makes a huge difference, he said. Many, many parents spend an awful lot of time doing that. The important thing is to be reading and to be giving feedback and sitting together and all of those things that parents dedicate so much time to. Mr Hines, who became Education Secretary in January, taken over from Justine Greening, said schools do a great job on accelerating development, but it is still the case that with the differences that are discernible even at age five or sometimes even before, it is all too depressingly predictable what some of the later differences in attainment will be at 16 or 18. 
The earliest years are where there is the greatest leverage for improving social mobility and improving children's opportunity to fulfill their potential. However, he said some parents, especially those juggling many different responsibilities or jobs, may be finding it hard to dedicate enough time to helping their children develop skills. He said it's always hard for parents, and yes, there are extra pressures in the modern world. It is difficult. Parents know that, and that's why it's so important when you can find ways for professionals to give hints and tips to make it easier. I think that's something that parents can find very valuable. Today, Mr. Hines is launching a £5 million pilot scheme in the north of England to help parents teach their children vocabulary at home through reading and singing nursery rhymes. It will be run by the Education Endowment Foundation and will provide workshops in nurseries, community centres and homes. The project's found to be most effective could later be rolled out across the country. In addition, £8.5 million has been made available to councils across the country for language and literacy development projects for disadvantaged children. Education Endowment Foundation Chief Executive Sir Kevin Collins said by testing different ways of tackling issues like the early years word gap, this new fund will give us much needed information about how we can give parents the tools they need to give their child the very best start in life. Well, I've no doubt technology is ultimately to blame for this. Kids are spending more time using technology nowadays, pads, tablets, etc., than they are with books. Parents say about their kids, they pick it up so quick nowadays, it's amazing. They're only two years old and they're already using an iPad. And they say it as if it's a good thing. It's not a good thing. It's fundamentally responsible for the problem this article is talking about. I've talked before about the effect technology addiction has on the brain. Author and researcher Susan Greenfield wrote a book called Mind Change in which she talks about this subject and she says, it is hard to see how living this way on a daily basis will not result in brains, or rather minds, different from those of previous generations. The mid-21st century mind might almost be infantilized, characterized by short attention span, sensationalism, inability to empathize, and a shaky sense of identity. Scientists used to think that the way the brain is when you're born is how it stays forever, but now they find that the brain changes throughout life because of something called brain plasticity and environmental influences, experiential influences, other influences can change brain and technology is responsible for that. Books are disappearing in favor of technology and eBooks, but even eBooks can have the same effect on the brain, which I'm sure is the real reason why eBooks exist and why monsters like Amazon, talked about Amazon before, are behind Kindles to read eBooks. Books are the prevention of the effects of technology addiction on the brain. With technology, everything is quick and instant or near instant, whereas with books there's substance, and substance means time. Time taken to read the book and think about it and understand it, and looking away from the book every now and then as you're reading to think about what you're reading, especially if it's a factual book. But technology is the opposite of that. It's about instant, and the brain gets to a point where it needs stimulation. This is not just kids, but adults too. The brain needs electronic stimulation. The point with kids though is that the younger someone is, the more it's easier to mold them in terms of the brain and person and perceptions. The brain gets to a point where it needs electronic stimulation. Everything has to be quick nowadays. Soundbite, media and entertainment. Taking the time to read books or information, like information about the true nature of world events and news headlines placed into their true context requires thought, attention and time. That's what technology is more and more preventing people from being able to do and it's by design that this is happening, it's not by accident. What this article talks about fundamentally connects into or plays off of political correctness because what we're looking at in the current environment 
it's not so much a war on freedom of speech, although that is certainly happening, but a war on speech in general and technology playing its part in what this article talks about is all part of the same agenda. Another story here about the Hunger Games Society. This is in The Independent. DWP tells man with incurable brain tumour he is fit for work, says GP. A man with incurable brain cancer has been found to be fit for work by the Department for Work and Pensions Assessors, a GP has revealed. NHS GP Dr. May J. Ali said the man who is undergoing regular treatment to prolong his life is among a number of her patients to have lost benefits and been told they have to work on the basis of snapshot assessments which ignore medical realities. Charities say they are regularly contacted by patients for support and benefits and fit-for-work appeals and have been lobbying for more stringent assessments, particularly where disability is not immediately obvious. Writing for The Independent, the Birmingham GP explains how one of her patients suffers daily headaches and is undergoing a gruelling regime of chemotherapy and radiotherapy in order to prolong his life. Well, chemotherapy kills cells. Just kills cells. It doesn't only kill cancer cells, it kills all cells. And the question is, are enough cancer cells killed before too many regular cells are killed? And I know there is chemotherapy now that is more targeted, but it's still capable of killing regular cells. And radiotherapy, radiation. What's the cause of cancer? Radiation. After all these years, millions on millions on millions donated to cancer charities, and yet the best they can come up with is killing cells and radiation, which is a cause of cancer. It's madness, but it's perfect if you have a depopulation agenda. Do we really believe that there are no other ways to cure cancer? Of course there are, but we only get those two. I've talked before about how alternative methods of treatment are being demonized and people trying to promote them are subject to limitation and restriction, and yet pharmaceutical drugs are given free ring when they have endless side effects which are actually effects under another name. Are there scam drugs and treatments out there? Yeah, of course there are. But look at how pharmaceutical drugs and hospital treatment can go wrong, and yet there's no restriction on it. Alternative methods of healing, which are successful, are restricted. That's the whole point. And if you wanted to call a massive amount of the population, you would restrict successful treatment. Though his brain tumour condition is incurable and the treatment leaves him tired and with serious side effects, Dr Ali said he was found fit for work and ineligible for employment and support allowance after an assessment. In another recent case, she said one of her young patients was tragically diagnosed with early onset Parkinson's disease, meaning they shuffle when they walk, freeze up involuntarily and often need assistance with eating meals and dressing. Dr Ali says despite being significantly disabled by the condition, the DWP said the patient was not eligible for benefits in the form of personal independence payments and was left feeling humiliated by the assessment process. Another patient with a long-term and serious mental health condition lost his PIP benefits and attempted to take his own life, but it took three appeals from her to get them reinstated, she told the independent. I don't think people should be made to feel they're playing the system when they have a chronic health problem, says Dr Ali. She goes on to say, it's almost like they have to prove something, but it's not a court of law, it's a health assessment, and it should look at physical and mental health, and I just don't think it does. The article goes on. The assessment process is a 10-minute snapshot, and she said this fails to take account of the fluctuations in or less obvious symptoms. On a national scale, she said this process created more of a burden on already stretched health services and exacerbated illnesses and concern for patients. I am currently in the process of writing a letter about my patient with a brain tumour to appeal the decision, says Dr. Ali. 
This will be in between my surgeries, pile of referrals and bloody results, home visits and practice management tasks. It seems that the current system is not working for those who need it and NHS time and resources are being drained in trying to correct a problem that shouldn't exist in the first place. The article goes on. Across the country, GPs have concerns about the number of patients coming to them for support with appeals which often see benefits reinstated. Richard Vultry, chair of the British Medical Association's GP committee, told the Independent with so many appeals succeeding, it calls into question the quality of the initial assessment. Laura Cochrane, Parkinson's UK had a policy and campaign, said unfortunately we know that PIP is failing people with Parkinson's at every turn. Due to an inadequate assessment process that fails to take into account how conditions like Parkinson's actually affect people and a lack of knowledge by assessors, people are being denied the support they desperately need. Cameron Miller, head of policy and public affairs for the Brain Tumor Charity, said, According to our report, the price you pay, we know that around 80% of those diagnosed have had to stop work entirely or reduce their hours. However, only one in four people living with a brain tumour felt that those who assessed them for personal independence payments understood their brain tumour and 85% of those who had a work capability assessment found the process very stressful. Clearly, the DWP need to look at who is carrying out these assessments and ensure that they have received specific training on this condition to ensure an effective and fair assessment. A DWP spokesperson said it could not comment on cases without knowing the individuals involved, but added, we are absolutely committed to ensuring that people get the support they're entitled to. Why don't they then, in many cases? Assessments are carried out by qualified healthcare professionals. Well, why then does a GP disagree with a professional working for the DWP who says a man with an incurable brain tumour is fit for work? Why are other people who clearly are not fit for work found to be fit for work? Assessments are carried out by qualified healthcare professionals who look at how someone's disability or health condition impacts them on a day-to-day basis, including their functional capability for work for ESA rather than the condition itself. We no longer routinely reassess people with the most severe and lifelong health conditions or disabilities for ESA and for PIP we are working to ensure those who are awarded the highest level of support get an award duration that is appropriate to the condition and needs arising. This is the Hunger Games Society again, where there's designed to be an elite living in mega mega luxury even more than now and everyone else on the planet in mega mega poverty. Basically if you're not this elite they want your money too. In that world, which we're getting closer and closer to, you'll have just enough to survive. Your access to the basics of life will be dependent on you not challenging authority and accepting their rule over your life right down to the finest detail. I talked last week about Amazon and its treatment of employees. That will be widespread in the world we're heading towards. And everything will be corporations or government, world government, and elected in the end organizations and if you don't want to work for corporations massive giant corporations in a corporate world then tough because there won't be anyone else to work for people think austerity slashing benefits and government cuts are just because of the government and just about money and just because of the government's choice at the time when that government is in power but it's an agenda to create the hunger game society and it's about control ultimately not money also, people with health problems being made to work plays into the depopulation agenda, just like the NHS being underfunded plays into the depopulation agenda. Isn't it funny how they make cuts and slash benefits, saying we can't afford this, we can't afford that, we need to make cuts, slash this benefit. But there's always money for war. There's always money for agenda projects. How many times do you hear them say, we can't go to war, we can't afford it? Never happens. We can't invade this country on a manufactured pretext to advance our geopolitical agenda because of our 
foreign policy because we can't afford it, it never happens. There's always money for the agenda and for what suits them and their masters in the hidden, ultimately. Some of this money, by the way, comes from taxation. But there's also what's known as the black budget covert operations. So they always have money for agenda projects, but the people, they have limited money for it because that's the agenda. This is the psychopathic mentality running our world and eventually people are going to have to realise that. Change of subject now. Story here about Uber. This is in the Daily Mail. Now Uber is banned in a fourth UK city, Brighton Hove Council refuses the taxi app firm a licence, saying it is not fit and proper to hold one amid data breach concerns. Well, there's other reasons to be concerned with that, and I'll get to them after I've read out the article. Brighton Council will not renew taxi app Uber's licence in the city because it is not a fit and proper firm, it has announced today. Licensing bosses said they were concerned over a mass data breach in 2016 that affected around 2.7 million UK users. The council said it was also concerned about the use of drivers from outside the local area. It meant it is the fourth city to refuse Uber a license in recent months after London, Sheffield and York, although Sheffield council leaders later reversed their decision. Licensing panel chair Jackie O'Quinn said our priority is the safety of residents and visitors and due to the data breach and the lack of commitment to using drivers licensed here, we were not satisfied that UBL, Uber Britannia Limited, are a fit and proper person to hold an operator's license. Uber has since announced its intention to appeal the decision. A spokesman for the firm said this is a disappointing decision for the thousands of passengers and drivers who rely on our app in Brighton and Hove. We intend to appeal so we can continue serving the city. It comes months after a similar decision by Transport for London who declined to extend Uber's licence last year. Uber appealed and is still able to operate until a hearing takes place in the summer. The Transport Authority previously found the service was not a fit and proper operator due to its failure to report crimes carried out by its drivers. In response, Uber announced a series of new policies in the UK earlier this year, including more proactively working with police when incidents are reported and introducing a 24-hour customer support phone line. Uber failed to initially report the cyber attack in 2016, where hackers were able to obtain the names, email addresses and mobile phone numbers of passengers and drivers. Uber's changes also include plans to give customers, known as riders, more access to driver information, including the licensing authority and private hire number of their driver. In February, the firm's UK general manager, Tom Elvich, said, With millions of trips across the UK booked through our app each week, the safety of riders and drivers using Uber is a top priority. Over the last few years, we've led the way with pioneering technology which enhances safety like GPS tracking of every trip and our two-way rating system. But we recognise we can use our technology to go even further in setting a higher standard for private hire and other transport options. After listening to feedback from drivers, riders, local regulators and the police, we're introducing a number of new features and changes to enhance driver and passenger safety. The US firm has been attempting to reshape its image under new chief executive Dara Khosrowshahi after the departure of former boss Travis Kalanak and a host of other executives last year, which followed a string of scandals including claims of sexual harassment with the company and massive data breach. Well, I've talked before about the agenda to corporatize everything and Uber is part of an agenda to corporatize travel. It's not about money, it's about control. If you corporatize everything and privatize everything, then you can regulate everything from a central point, which means anyone challenging or exposing you, or you being the authority, the establishment, etc., you will not get access to anything important in their life, which means you have total control over their life, because they have to do what you say, otherwise they don't get travel, money, food, water, energy, shelter. This is the world that's planned, as I've talked about before, especially in episode four. Driverless cars are the same, in that they will be 
programmed not to take you anywhere. Authority doesn't want you to go. And in terms of access to travel, they want a large percentage of travel to be underground high-speed rail travel. Again, so access to it can be dictated from a central point. Also, in terms of not being able to go to certain areas, I've talked before about how countries are designed to be broken up into regions to make them easier to control. In the image of the Hunger Games Society, the Agenda 21 world, Agenda 21 out of the United Nations, and Uber plays into this agenda. It's not just about money, it's about control ultimately, as is the entirety of the elite's agenda. Only certain areas will be allowed for people to live in and use, and these are the planned smart cities or human settlement zones in Agenda 21 language. And the smart cities plays into the transhumanism agenda. So this is a story about Uber, but it connects into all these other areas. And that's why I do pay-per-view to point out the fact that a story about one thing can be a story about many other things at the same time. But the media just reports on that one thing with no knowledge that there's anything more to it. And that's the whole point of pay-per-view. As I've said before, once you know the elite's agenda, then you know where a news story, apparently in isolation, is planned to go. I read out a story earlier about speech and words. Well, this next story is also about that, very much so. Story here about political correctness. This is in the Daily Mail. Victory for free speech. Minister bans student trend of censoring controversial speakers in first intervention of its kind for 30 years. Student zealots will be banned from censoring controversial speakers on campuses following the first ministerial intervention on free speech in 30 years. Sam Guillaume, the university's minister, has announced tough new guidance which will see institutions disciplined if they allow valid debates to be shut down. He vowed to stamp out the chilling trend of speakers being blocked from campuses simply because there is institutional hostility to unfashionable views. It will be the first government intervention on the issue since the free speech duty was imposed on universities as part of the Education Act in 1986. 32 years then, the new guidance will state that all speech must be welcome at universities as long as it does not violate existing laws, for example, encouraging terrorism. Any institution who breaches the rules may be named, shamed or even fined by the new Office for Students Regulator, which also has the power to deregister universities. It follows a number of high-profile cases of attempts by student unions to censor feminists, Tory politicians, gay rights activists and even race campaigners over concerns they had offensive views. Union officials claim they must now platform anyone who might say something controversial because they have a duty to protect the feelings of students and provide safe spaces. Can you imagine the implication for that, for freedom? Anything controversial must be banned because they have a duty to protect the feelings of students and provide safe spaces. As I've said before, being offended is a choice, and instead of banning the expression of views that are deemed potentially controversial or triggering in the language of the routinely offended, how about focusing on strengthening people so it doesn't matter what they hear or see, it won't affect them. But the agenda, as I've said before, is to produce weak people in different ways, one of them in relation to not being able to deal with opinions being expressed that people think could offend them. And it's about producing weak people who will look to the state to protect them. Look to Big Brother to protect you from anything you might find offensive or hurtful. And the state will be very happy to do that. Not to protect you, even though you'll think that's what it's about, but actually to take away freedom.
Mr. Guillaume said a free exchange of ideas must be integral to universities and warned some people were shutting down views to suit their own ends. University is supposed to be about debate. Today, Mr. Guillaume is chairing a private summit with university bosses, regulators, union officials, experts and civil servants to consult on what form the guidance will take. He said, a society in which people feel they have a legitimate right to stop someone expressing their views on campus simply because they are unfashionable or unpopular is rather chilling. There is a risk that overzealous interpretation of a dizzying variety of rules is acting as a break on legal free speech on campus. That is why I am bringing together leaders from across the higher education sector to clarify the rules and regulations around speakers and events to prevent bureaucrats or records on campus from exploiting gaps for their own ends. Student union officials trying to stifle free speech often claim that guidance from the Charity Commission requires speakers to go through rigorous vetting, but Mr Guillaume said his new rule book will override any existing guidance from other bodies which he branded murky. He said it would signal a new chapter for free speech on campus, ensuring future generations of students get exposure to stimulating debates and a diversity of viewpoints. Sir Michael Barber, chairman of the OFS, which will take part in the summit, said our universities are places where free speech should always be promoted and fostered. That includes the ability for everyone to share views which may be challenging or unpopular even if that makes some people feel uncomfortable. The Office for Students will always encourage freedom of speech within the law. We will never intervene to restrict it. There's a point to make on that though. There are rules against speech inciting terrorism and violence and hatred and that's the way it should be. But the idea is to take the definition of extremism and people like David Cameron and Theresa May have talked about this. Extremists need to be censored, but it's not about extremism. Ultimately, it's about just the same as political correctness is ultimately stopping exposure of areas and subjects the elite don't want people to talk about. So what you do is you expand the definition of extremism with a vague definition to encompass as wide a range as possible so you can then use that definition to silence those you really want to silence, which are people exposing your agenda. The article goes on. Other organisations involved in today's summit include the Home Office, the Charity Commission, the National Union of Students and the Equality and Human Rights Commission. The guidance will be formulated in consultation with these stakeholders and published in due course. In most cases, student unions and societies, rather than the universities themselves, have been no platforming speakers. While these organisations are to some extent independent of universities, vice-chancellors will still have a duty to force them to keep to the guidance while operating on campus. Well, this is very positive and encouraging because this is exactly what needs to happen. The fact that it's now going to be law is probably the only way that change will happen in universities. I mean, speaking of universities, students used to march for freedom of speech. Now they can't wait to get rid of it. I can only imagine what students of the 60s would have made of today's student body in universities. I've talked about political correctness many times, so I won't repeat myself, but there is something I want to touch on that comes from the online version of this article, and that is that they mention Antifa, groups like Antifa, anti-fascists apparently, who act in fascistic and violent ways to stop freedom of speech and expression. They say they're anti-fascist while using violence to stop expression they disagree with. They say they're stopping fascist views or views that can incite danger or hatred towards others being expressed while using violence to protest against those views. They claim to stand for shutting down anti-politically correct views and to oppose the elite. But the elite want to shut down anti-politically correct views because they don't want exposure of the truth of the areas you're not allowed to talk about. Like the truth about immigration or Israel or transgender. When you look at the list of anti-politically correct views, it's a list of elite agendas central to the overall agenda. That's why they're labelled 
anti-politically correct. People can get lost in the labels anti-fascist, far-right, left, centre, conservative, liberal. Identity politics. We're seeing the rise more and more now of identity politics. People deciding what their views are based on their identity, their group, groupthink, rather than looking at everything and everyone and every view on their merit. A political correctness can't see merit. It doesn't understand the meaning of the word. It doesn't do shades of grey. It doesn't do humour either, as with the story I'd read out before this one. Every situation is the same if the political correctness laws are broken. Every person is the same who identifies in a certain way. So what you've got is identities. Notice I say identities, not people, because it's about people being encouraged to think in groups. You've got identities being played off against each other to create the chaos to divide and rule. You've got transgenders and feminists fighting each other, for example. It's all about creating division in every area of society. Yes, for divide and rule, but also because the only way to challenge the elite and their nightmare agenda for the world is for people to put their identity to one side and come together in mutual support towards the end of the end of the elite's agenda. So if you're the elite, you have to break up anything unifying. This is why they want to break up the family unit, as I said earlier. And you've also got to prevent unity, not uniformity. That's a different thing. Uniformity is what Antifa are all about. And protest techniques like Black Bloc, another so-called anti-fascist group acting fascistically, who dress up in American police-like uniform and stand together to create a block. And political correctness is all about seeing people in groups and uniform. I'm talking about unity regardless of identity and view. But the elite know that to achieve their agenda, or the rest of their agenda more accurately, because some of it is already in place while most people continue to do nothing about it, not least because they're not told about it through the mainstream media. But the elite know that to achieve the rest of their agenda, they have to prevent unity in any form, and that's what creating this division is all about. You've got division between men and women, with men worried about being accused of sexism if they do or say anything that could be perceived to be sexist. This, of course, is massively increased after the Harvey Weinstein revelations. People get lost in the labels and they think it's complicated to understand the situation with protesters and those they're protesting against because of the different labels and that you have to understand the different labels first before you can understand the situation. There's the protesters, there's those they're protesting against, there's those that comment on it from another group and then these groups see it this way, this group see it that way. But labels are irrelevant. Labels Identity politics is what has created the problem in the first place. Looking at everyone on their merit is the answer. Looking at what a person is saying and doing and how they're acting. That's how people should be judged. But political correctness needs groupthink for it to survive. Because if you judge people on their merit, there are no groups if you do that. Everyone's just an individual if you see everybody on their merit. But political correctness needs groupthink for political correctness to survive. Because that's how it sees everything. Political correctness demands everyone is just as a group, in other words, exactly the same. And this is where the PC hierarchy comes from. If you're a white, heterosexual male, you've basically got no support from the PC pyramid. You can only be the one doing the discriminating. You can't be the one being discriminated against because you're a white, heterosexual male. Another thing to point out is that the smaller the minority, the more protection they get in the pyramid. So if you're a white, heterosexual male, you're at the bottom of the pyramid. And then above you are all the groups, races, and minority groups that political correctness claims to be defending. But in truth, it's being used to take away everyone's freedom. At the top, bar absolutely none, is Zionism. Revisionist Zionism, elite Zionism, rather than Zionism in general. As I've said before, there's two types of Zionism. The reason 
elite Zionism is at the top of the pyramid is because of its connection to the elite, particularly the House of Rothschild and their connection to Israel. This is why any criticism of Israel is jumped on from a great height. Also, as I've said before, Israel criticism has to be jumped on from a great height because of what understanding the truth of elite Zionism could lead to in terms of understanding. I've seen it described before as trying to stop dominoes falling. First domino is understanding that elite Zionism exists. Then what is it and who's behind it and why? The more dominoes that fall, the more points of understanding there are, wider the panorama becomes until you see that actually there's an elite behind Zionism, not least the House of Rothschild, and there's an elite behind foreign policy and political leaders who are Zionists and the ratio of Zionists in positions of power is massively imbalanced in terms of the number of them in power to the number of Zionists, regular Zionists, the other kind of Zionism in the general population. And to see that and to see that there's an elite behind it, other points of understanding could be revealed as the dominoes fall. This is why criticism of Zionism has to be stamped out at source. I talked about elite Zionism in episode 10. It's not about stopping discrimination because, as I said in episode 13, political correctness is the ultimate discrimination because it ranks people according to their identity in terms of ability to be discriminated against and therefore their level of protection from discrimination. We hear that political correctness doesn't discriminate, it treats everybody the same and it's about fairness and equality and stopping discrimination, but there is a PC pyramid. So deciding who will be given protection with the PC pyramid, unless you're Israel, of course, then they get ultimate protection, Zionism. Judging who will be given what level of protection based on their identity, that's discrimination. And it ranks everybody as a group, which means it's enforcing stereotypes, which it claims to stand against doing, and it seeks to impose itself on people based purely on their view, not even their race, colour, creed or background, just their view. Political correctness is the ultimate discrimination while lecturing to others about discrimination. It doesn't do merit, it doesn't do context, and it certainly doesn't do debate. It just does judging based on identity and imposing itself based on another's view. That's discrimination in my book. Also, whereas racists, for example, might only be discriminatory about Muslim people or black people, or sexists might discriminate against only gay people or only lesbian people or only transgender people, or even all three. That's nothing compared to political correctness, which takes no prisoners and seeks to impose itself on everyone to varying extents based on where they are in the pyramid, based purely on their view, except for Israel. So, for example, a Muslim person is at a certain point in the pyramid, but they can still be guilty of a hate crime, according to political correctness anyway, against transgender people, because there's less of them. So, political correctness imposes itself on everyone, except for Israel. Also, political correctness is obsessed with all the categories where people can be guilty of a hate crime, like racism, sexism, transphobia. In other words, it's obsessed with race and gender and all the other areas. It sees that before the person, whereas someone like me, for example, would look at the person. But political correctness, because it's obsessed with groupthink, it can only see groups. And it's obsessed with race first, not the person. It's obsessed with gender first, not the person. 
It's the ultimate discrimination while claiming to be against discrimination. Political correctness is an elite agenda to stop exposure of elite agendas and to destroy freedom of speech. And without freedom of speech, there can be no other freedom. How can you defend other freedoms without freedom of speech to do it? There is only one way to defend freedom of speech, and that is to stand up and be counted and express our views. Say the unsayable, because if we don't, then there will be no freedom, not too long from now. So that's it for this week. That's the news. That's the context and connections. That's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.